Hello, and welcome to Talking Additive, episode 12. Like I think anybody in 3D printing knows, it's all about the education. It's about knowing what's possible and then knowing how to get there and how to get that early success within a company. That was Haley Ann Friedman, Global Market Manager and Engineering Consultant at M. Holland Company. M. Holland Company is a family-owned business that was founded in 1950 in Illinois and has, over time, expanded to become a major international plastic resins distributor for the injection molding industry. In the past few years, as additive manufacturing has played a larger role in parts production in the plastics industry, M. Holland created a team dedicated to offering cross-industry knowledge, advice, and expertise to help their customers compete. Paleanne is a crucial part of this team, and M. Holland 3D works closely with polymer companies and filament producers to develop and distribute spools of filament to companies within the manufacturing industry as well as individual engineers and designers. I talked with Haley Ann over the phone late this summer to catch up on industry insights. Haley Ann is forthright in her belief that 3D printing has a bright future in the injection molding industry and within manufacturing in general. And she is herself a proven past master at making this technology really sing for its supper. But she's not afraid to share her opinions. I'm biased as all hell, but I don't think that there's much of a place left for closed platform printing. The excuse for as long as I can remember that closed platform is just easier because you can set it up and click print. Well, I can tell you that when I got the Ultimaker, I didn't even open the manual and I set it up and clicked print. <laughs> Why does Haley Ann feel it is critical for a residence distributor like M. Holland and their wide customer base to take 3D printing seriously as additive manufacturing moves beyond prototyping into production of in-use parts and manufacturing aids? More on this and other topics on Talking Additive. I'm Matt Griffin, and this is Talking Additive, a 3D printing podcast made possible by Ultimaker. On Talking Additive, we sit down with business leaders, innovators, and allies to discuss the impact of adopting 3D printing in their businesses. How does adopting additive manufacturing positively benefit a business today? How is the role of 3D printing evolving within manufacturing and on the factory floor? And what will be possible in the future? Welcome to the 12th episode for the Talking Additive podcast. Talking Additive launches new episodes on Tuesdays every two weeks. Since 2011, Ultimaker has built an open and easy-to-use solution of 3D printers, software, materials, and support ecosystem that enables professional designers, engineers, and manufacturers to innovate every day. Its global team of more than 400 employees work together to accelerate the world's transition to digital distribution and local manufacturing. My name is Haley Ann Friedman, and I am the Global Market Manager and Engineering Consultant at M. Holland Company. We're a company within a company. We're M. Holland 3D. So first of all, thank you very much for joining today. Really appreciate you being on Talking Additive. Yeah, thank you for having me. Describe for the Talking Additive listeners the field in which your company works. M. Holland as a whole is a distributor of resin for plastic injection molding and blow molding and other plastic processing. And we as a 3D printing department specifically work to identify solutions for 3D printing regardless of their application. So we'll help with selecting machinery, we'll help with selecting materials, we'll help with actual technical support when they do have machines uh, and materials in place, we'll help with application development, design, our 
our all-encompassing is if you're doing anything in 3D printing, chances are we can probably help. Everybody likes to pretend like 3D printing is new, but it's really not. It's been around for quite a while and a lot of people have adopted it, but it hasn't blown up in the production area that I think a lot of us had hoped that it would. And we found that a a huge gap uh, there has been the education. Like I think anybody in 3D printing knows, it's all about the education. It's about knowing what's possible and then knowing how to get there and how to get that early success within a company. We'll look at what do you want to be able to 3D print? Are you 3D printing anything? What are you using? Because in many cases, especially when it comes to FDM and FFF, it makes more sense to produce it Mm in-house than to outsource it. Unless you're making these gigantic, massive parts, you're going to save as much money as you would spend on those five or six part orders as you would spend on a printer. We want to try and find the absolute best uh, solutions for them. And we'll give them transparent data. We'll run all of these different analysis to show if you outsource it, it would cost you X amount. And if you buy your own printer, it'll cost this amount in order to produce these components. And in some cases, the, what they want to print is not a good idea. That <laughs> happens all the time. But we can at least guide them and educate them on where 3D printing does fit and what does make the most sense so that we can really help them develop those applications and work to spec those in for production. Because there's just so many things, especially in the injection molding world, that make more sense to 3D print than they do to injection mold, especially when it comes to quantities. We want to work to establish those and really see those through. The open platform side where it opens up all the different materials you could possibly imagine without having to buy 72 different printers, it made just so much more sense. And I didn't understand why trying to force applications into one single printer manufacturer's technology Mm. with really one type of material that it could run was even an offering anymore to begin with. The patents expired in 2015 why are people still buying this? It it didn't make sense to me. When I got my very first open platform printer, it really just showed me the possibilities of what could be produced when you can produce anything of any material sub 290C and how many applications you could truly meet the needs of. Being able to do something with open platform and being able to manipulate all of these different settings because there's so many different non-traditional ways that you can get a part to work on an Ultimaker or on a different open platform printer with all the things that you can change, that it really opens up that mad scientist uh, style of trial and error that makes applications you might not think are possible originally completely possible (laughs) through your manipulation of those settings. It does require patience, but it's the best thing ever about open platform 3D printing. It's my favorite. We discover something new in the settings like every other day. That's, That's amazing. Amholland has a huge range of materials. Is it uh, intended that you're always finding solutions from within the catalog of offerings there? That's the fortunate part about being in distribution is we we can pull from absolutely anywhere. And if there's something that's super compelling or fits a lot of applications that our customers have, we'll go out and bring it into our portfolio. We've got a pretty rigorous testing department for 3D printing that has at least 25 materials in the queue at any given time. And we'll print all of these different parts to figure out rating the materials based on, okay, the properties, does this meet a need that other materials can't, but then also how printable is that material? Because it might have the best properties on the planet, but if it's totally difficult to print, then there's no point because you're going to fail 99% of the time. Um, So we'll run it through everything. But if we identify that an application works better with a a material that we don't carry, then 
we will point it towards the material that we don't carry. There's no point in trying to force it into a material that doesn't make sense. It doesn't benefit anyone. And we'd rather the application succeed and look into the business case of us bringing that into our line card than them forcing something where it doesn't belong. Ex- explain to me the kinds of relationships that M. Hollins has with the, with the various uh, material offerings. In some of our, our partnerships, we've worked with companies, uh, especially on the chemical side, they want to get into the 3D printing space, but as I'm sure you can imagine, they want to sell truckloads and truckloads of material, which is not how this works. Yeah. <laughs> We're selling box by box. Exactly. <laughs> and we also sell it by KGs. There are all these companies that have this these excellent technologies that will help expand additives capabilities, but they can't reach that customer. So what we've sorted out with some of the chemical companies and every relationship is different is we'll take that on. We've got warehouses throughout the country. We've got international warehouses. Distribution is is what we do as a whole. So we already had that infrastructure set up to be able to ship anywhere in the world and easily. So what we were able to do is buy large quantities from these chemical suppliers and make it so that if there are resellers of certain pieces of equipment or online retailer uh, retailers who want to carry filament, we can sell it to them without requiring that they buy truckloads and truckloads of material mm. and make it significantly more accessible to them, which is necessary for establishing a market in the first place uh, when it comes to 3D printing, because nobody's buying that, yeah. just no one. So we've got relationships in, in that regard, but then we also just have relationships with companies where we found that their technology was so compelling that we needed to be able to offer it to our, our customers because we just had so many applications that fit in that space. So we just wanted to carry it. So it depends, but our infrastructure as a injection molding pellet distributor really enabled us to do it easily and faster mm. than I think pretty much anybody else in the space. And so what is the role of AM within the company as a whole? M. Holland really prides itself on on being a value-add distributor. When you're in distribution, you don't have IP, you've got infrastructure um, that can be built on. You don't own any formulas per se. So you, you've really got to focus on being able to offer different services and things that are of benefit to your customers. And 3D printing really started out that way mm. as we want to be able to add and offer this service to our customers to help them with this since we saw so many of our customers struggling with it or not understanding their position or how to position this within their own companies and their own offerings. So it started out that way and then it started turning into some something so much more where we were you know, able to establish uh, these actual services that, that we can help with material selection and printer selection and actually printing parts in some cases for customers that don't have the budget or ability to purchase printers at that given time. Mm -hmm. So we almost consider it in the business of evangelizing additive because we want to make sure that as many applications are possible to be produced within these molders, they can be. But we are just a branch of a much larger company and we support our account managers and their customers. Over the time, even the time that you've been there, have you seen more applications being discovered for using FFF technology? I think I've seen more on the side of, you know, as these new materials are launching, like Ultrafuse, the 316L from BASF is a good example. Mm-hmm. That's really opening up applications. That's huge. That's so huge to be able to print 316L on these 
inexpensive 3D printers that's just absolutely massive. Every time there's an update on the slicer, some new capability is uncovered or enabled or something gets better or you're able to program certain things in the post-processing extensions or whatever they're unlocking is always opening up new applications. On Monday, we'll be working on a, a chapstick container prototype. And on Tuesday, we'll be working on a car door. All of those different things unlock something, no matter how small it is, it really does help unlock the the capabilities of the technology and make it more and more versatile. And being a part of it as it starts to emerge just makes us all the more equipped to help people find those solutions uh, because we've been there from the start. Mm -hmm. There are over 500 settings in Cura and knowing that there is one experimental setting that's been experimental for two years that you can enable that makes your cylindrical parts look super perfect is a great thing to be able to to have in your back pocket to solve these application mysteries. So let's talk a little bit about AM adoption in manufacturing. Could you tell me a little bit about your sort of latest thinking on the role of FFF in contexts usually associated with injection molding? Functional prototyping is something that a lot of people talk about, but as these materials change in advance, being able to manipulate your properties to better replicate what an injection molding part and how it would actually perform under testing is incredibly lucrative uh, to everybody in that industry. Everyone knows how expensive and horrible the prototyping process is in injection molding, and it takes forever and it costs a billion dollars. It's just, it's all around terrible. So Mm. being able to actually get very close to the properties that you would expect to see uh, from an injection molded part is unbelievably helpful. That's just one space, but that has really come with the advancement of materials and the ability to use the same printer that you're able to use on the materials that were available last year today to process them in the same way. So that's just one area. Actually printing prototype tooling in some cases when the injecting resin has a low enough heat deflection temperature to be compatible with that process. We've been successful with creating actual prototype injection tools so that we can get an injection molded prototype to assess that component. Mm. We'll print something out of nylon or a carbon filled nylon or something with a much higher heat deflection temperature and inject something like ABS or whatever in there so that we can actually utilize it there. We in 3D printing, I'm sure are sick of talking about jigs and fixtures, but everyone else is not. (laughs) Nobody else in normal manufacturing is aware fully that jigs and fixtures should be produced with 3D printing and that it doesn't make sense to continue to pay an operator to stand there to machine something that could be 3D printed overnight with no one on site. You hit the nail on the head. What are some uses that have popped up for you in the last, you know, couple of months that have really suggested to you, oh, this is great. This is a way to use FFF to solve something. This is a really good match for that. Honestly, I think for us, it is that being able to produce the the prototype molds yeah. on our side, that that's the coolest part because it's applicable to one all of our customers, of course. Yeah. And blow molds are the same way. You can 3D print a, a blow mold that is completely functional. It's very low temp molding application and it, it works so well. And everyone thinks, oh, you've got to at least photopolymerize uh, a prototype mold and you don't. You can totally do it with FDM. Yeah, expect that it will have layer lines unless you're willing to post-process it. But 
I actually find that in many cases it works better than the photopolymerized molds because they're less fragile and oh, right. they're a heck of a lot faster to produce because you don't have to bake them in an oven after for, you know, however many hours and wash them. <laughs> right. You just take them off and you use them. Uh, what kind of materials do you use for uh, blow molding applications? Carbon-filled nylon, uh, primarily. Mm -hmm. And I will say that ABS and ASA tend to work a little bit better because you can smooth them a little more easily. Nylon gives you that accidental slash intentional texture, which looks super cool on an actual <laughs> water bottle, but is probably not what an actual uh, molder would want to see. Right. They want to see something that looks a little closer to a mirror finish. Nylon has just the ideal heat deflection temperature and I say ASA just because I'm on an ASA kick right now. It's awesome. my favorite. <laughs> this is Matt Griffin, host of Talking Additive, Ultimaker's 3D printing podcast. This is a critical time for industry to adopt 3D printing within aspects of manufacturing processes, safety, and efficiency, stabilizing and strengthening this field in the new global economy. Last week, we held our first Ask Me event on Twitter for Talking Additive episode 11 with Matt Rosian of Jabil Additive to answer listener questions online at hashtag Talking Additive, all one word. One of the questions featured Matt's quote from the episode. I always say, if you're manufacturing anything, you should have a 3D printer there to help make your process more efficient. Here's how he responded. I believe this to be true for several reasons. First, if you're spending more than 5K per year on outside machining work, you can justify the cost of good quality desktop printers like an Ultimaker. Second, there are many applications that can improve processes and make the work environment more safe and efficient that would not be considered for machining because of the costs, while 3D printing parts can easily be put into use or prove a concept at a very low cost. Lastly, as the world is changing, we all need to be more comfortable with this technology so that when there are game-changing applications for your business within AM, we have the experience and expertise to realize the full potential of AM to impact your business. Thank you again for joining us for this exchange with our listeners, Matt. Let's keep this conversation going, just like the 3D printing labs, machines, and teams all across the world that have remained open and fully operational even during these complicated times. Enjoy Talking Additive. We'd appreciate it if you would subscribe and post a review to Apple Podcasts or wherever you prefer listening. And explore past episodes with guests such as Matthew Forrester from L'Oreal, Captain Brad Baker from the U.S. Naval Academy, Nicholas Utebach from IGIS, and more. Let's now return to Haley Ann Friedman from M. Holland 3D. Would you like to introduce Talking Additive to women in 3D printing? It's been such a wonderful experience. The establishment of it, it was to encourage, inspire, and promote those women who have chosen or have fallen into a career in 3D printing, also to encourage more women to participate. The first time I ever went to AMUG, I always made the joke that it's the only place in the world you could ever go as a female and not wait in line for the bathroom. I was maybe one of 20 women the very first time that I went, and it never really bothered me, but it started becoming more and more apparent. I started to meet one or two people here and there, but it, it is really difficult to exist in a manufacturing space with a lot of the things that have been highlighted by our current social climate. 
we face all kinds of things and need a support network and networking opportunities to support one another. It, it can be very challenging and difficult. Growing up, my parents really pushed me towards uh, medical device sales and hmm. things like yeah. that because I grew up in California and it wasn't a huge manufacturing area. My mom was a teacher. My dad sold bread. It wasn't like they were telling me about all these engineering or manufacturing opportunities. I had to figure that out on my own. It was frustrating for me because once I landed into an engineering position, it was like, this is totally what I was supposed to be doing. Yeah. I really wish somebody could have encouraged me to do this uh, at a much younger age. It has been incredibly rewarding. Mm. So to be able to promote and inspire more women, show them that there are these opportunities in this half industrial and half technology space. We've got so many women with such different skill sets. Our network continues to grow and grow because we're finding more people who should really exist in the space that just don't even know that it exists. It's constantly growing, evolving, and changing, and it just gets better and better. I was named the the North America chair about two months ago. Oh, congratulations. But yeah, I was the contact for Chicago then, and then they said they were looking for someone, and I was like, oh, I, I would love to do that. I'm already involved really heavily in uh, women in manufacturing and knowing that women in 3D printing was newer. They, they've been around for a couple of years. I'm just really excited to be a part of it at this level. There's always more people and there's a lot of recruiting opportunities too, especially right now for people to go and find more diverse individuals for their companies and recruit them too. I, I could talk to you for another three hours about the benefits of women in 3D printing, but that's the shortest version I can give you. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for sharing about uh, women in 3D printing. I had for the first time in my entire life this past week, we've been interviewing for a strategic account manager from Holland and all three candidates that interviewed with me were female. Email. I've never awesome. had that happen before. It was the, it was the coolest thing ever, and you know, it's sad that that was the coolest thing ever, but it's also awesome that it's happening. So it, it's really cool to see the progression and to have been a part of it. Talk to us a little bit about how you work with the clients to really identify the right materials and why having a big range of materials is an advantage. What we found, at least in working with our customers too, is their material snobs. I guess is the best way to put it. <laughs> if you're not awesome. familiar with PA66, it is marginally different from PA6. And if you propose, let's try using a PA6 instead of a PA66, even though it's got a, all of a five degree heat deflection difference and marginally improved properties, but this one's available and works on a 3D printer. Oh God, no, we could never consider using that. <laughs> uh, and so we have to have those conversations all the time with, let's try it. The properties wouldn't be identical anyway, even if we did print with a PA6, but being able to show them what's possible when you are able to utilize those different materials or take something like a PA6 and say, okay, we need slightly higher heat deflection temperature. Why don't we look at a carbon-filled PA6? Or why don't we look at a glass-filled PA6 if you need your tensile increase? Being able to make those recommendations as they match with, with their expectations mm -hmm. is something that we both... Yeah struggle and do really well with at the same time, because everybody's expectations are, we have no idea where they get their expectations, honestly. They want to use a different process to get identical properties for a completely different process. We have to show them the data usually in order to convince them or say, let us just try it. Let's just try it and we want to show you what's possible and let's just see if it works. And more often than not, it does. It's a very clear picture of the dilemma when you have a customer coming in and, and, and having a, a very clear idea, but maybe not having the, the full understanding of what the, 
what it means to, to use these processes. Yeah, we, we talk about the printability of materials with customers more often than anything else, because if injection molders could give us a wish list of everything they'd want to print, it would be the nightmare list for 3D printing. <laughs> it would be Delrin, Acetel, PVC, polypropylene, and high-density polyethylene. Yeah. That's what they want to be able to 3D print, and all of those run our Let's Reconsider those materials list. So then now let's cover one of them. So you have a customer coming in and saying, I think this should be an ABS and you have an alternative for that. What is that conversation like when you want to you have an, a suitable uh, route for using ASA instead? It's easier to get somebody to try something. It's at least in a similar family. Unfortunately, with something like Delrin, we're usually substituting with something completely different. Oof. And same thing with PVC and Acetel. But Fortunately, there are so many materials with these amplified properties that we can almost overkill with the properties and <laughs> say, okay, we're going to use glass fiber nylon anyway, even though you don't need that heat deflection or that tensile uh, because it's going to be the best suited for what you're looking for. So we've actually even built a, a full-blown database of not just our materials, but every material we've ever tried, looked at everything that has all the properties that one of our very unfortunate interns had to input at some point and has to continue to update. And what we'll do is we'll type in the properties for the material that they're looking for that as it pertains to an injection molding material, and it will pull up everything within a specified tolerance band of those properties so that we can say, okay, do you really care about this particular property? You might be using polypropylene right now, but it doesn't work really well for your application. Does it need to have uh, hydrophobic properties or can it be a nylon? You know, we'll, we'll talk mm, with them, at, yeah. like almost negotiate with them on, on what properties are actually important because we've also found in many cases that they're using polypropylene because it's cheap or they're using at least in the injection molding world, or they're using whatever material just because it's what they've always used. There's no rhyme or reason. It's just what was available on the floor at that time. And <laughs> we'll really pull out why are you using it and is it important? Can we switch it? And more often than not, the answer is yes, there's flexibility on that material. So we do ASA quite a bit. And when we explain to them, ABS is great. ABS has great properties, but ASA is better uh, in so many different ways. It's easier to print. It's less warp prone. It can be printed with a matte finish, which if you've mm -hmm. printed a lot of ABS is huge from an, an aesthetics perspective. Good point. It's got UV resistance. So it's got all of these wonderful properties. And I've almost never had detrimental failures with ASA. It, right. It's just such a wonderful and a lot more user-friendly material. And when we talk to them about failure rates and how you have to factor in mm. a failure percentage into your actual cost. I want to hear more about failure rates into costs because th this kind of business thinking of how to really understand the full, you know, the full cost of, of using the technologies is probably really important for those who are not used to building projects around additive manufacturing? We started out with a, a reasonably simple ROI calculator for customers that we, as engineers do, add lots and lots and lots of data points to over time that has really grown into a huge detailed tool that analyzes every element of the process. Because what I found too, at least from my, my previous position, what I found was frustrating is that everybody would advertise from the marketing side oh, this part only costs $2. 
when it's, it didn't really cost $2. You also had to buy the machine and you failed three parts before you were able to do that. You know, there's so many more, so, so much more that goes into it besides just how much did your material cost for the density of that part. So we started showing that data to customers to help them understand, especially when they're looking at it from a production standpoint, because if you just did a calculation saying, yeah, you could print a hundred parts in one week and it will cost you $300, that's not accurate. You're going to have failures. It's completely inevitable and it's not going to happen in one week. It's going to happen in two weeks. And we have to take all of those different things into consideration. And when that type of data that's completely skewed by 3D printing companies is put in front of people, it's dangerously misleading Mm -hmm. and signs them up for scenarios where everybody's going to fail. The more we started to put that data in front of people, yeah, we had some people be very disappointed that we couldn't solve all their problems for half as much as traditional manufacturing, but that those are the cases where it didn't make sense anyway. So being able to show them that, and we've actually assigned failure ratings to the M. Holland testing process. So it's how we've decided to assess and assign these numbers to those materials. But we've based it on more than just a torture test. We've based it on suboptimal geometries, ideal geometries. We'll print a cube. We'll print all all these different parts and then we'll do it 10 times. And then we'll try and Mm. see how often do those fail that were caused by something more than a filament tangle? Cause that, that doesn't count. (laughs) How, How often does it, how often does it fail? So if they happen to us and we're incredibly experienced with, uh, how to run these more challenging materials, they are definitely, without a doubt, going to happen for the customers. So we try and share with them as much information as possible. And even in our education information, we would much rather tell somebody all the different ways that it's going to probably fail so that they're prepared to deal with that failure and incorporate that into their expectations than tell them that 3D printing is going to be super easy, seamless, and perfect for them every step of the way. And that's how we've Uh, gotten so many customers to be a lot more successful in actually getting those applications out and into the world instead of telling them, yeah, it's going to be great. We don't always want to just go with the easiest material. Properties do matter. And materials also get easier. There's been so many updates Mm -hmm. on Ultimaker, at at least from that standpoint, that have made it a lot easier to run those materials. We'll actually redo those failure tests on our more challenging materials every time there is a firmware update because- Oh, nice it changes. They make the sensors less easy to trip in some cases or able to feed something back to it. Yeah, there are are so many scenarios where we will recommend going with a more challenging material, but same with the other side of that. If it doesn't need it, don't do it. Don't sign yourself up for that if you don't have to. How do you help them draw on that huge library of potential materials? Honestly, we usually make the decisions for them, <laughs> Yeah. yeah. Uh, at least initially. Uh, if you're going into an automotive molder, for example, chances are they're molding like five to seven main materials, and then they might mold a little of this and a little of that, but they aren't you know, experienced with every single material in the injection molding world. Right. So explaining to them that we're choosing this material and this is why and helping them just learn along that way and keeping the responsibility of understanding those materials, at least on us in seemingly an ever-changing marketplace, seems to have been a lot more productive from a learning standpoint for them and for us in managing expectations than just saying, here's a list of materials and properties. Talk to us about the range of materials to give a kind of a full portrait of 
M. Holland, particularly in the additive space? Oh man, the range of materials. So it, we it's just like all of them. Oh, it's, it's, it's so many different, not all of them because there are definitely materials existing in the world that nobody has any business 3d printing. Yeah. And there are certain blends of ABS that I'm sure you've tried on <laughs> weekends that have no business being printed yeah. and God knows what was in them. <laughs> but <laughs> we have everything from just the standard ABS and PLA to high melt flow PLAs that can print much faster, yeah. which is Right after ASA is up there in my top five favorite materials. Have you ever tried the Pro One by BASF? You can print 150 millimeters a second. That's awesome. That's awesome. Yeah. So it's everything from there to nylons and filled nylons and polypropylenes. And we've got, but we also have Ultim and PPSU. And then on photopolymers, we've got a whole extra page of that. And we've even started carrying certain bed adhesion methods that at least through the supply chain issues from COVID, we identified that we just need to be able to supply for the customers because some of the materials are only printable with certain bed adhesion methods. So we need to make those available too. So we've really built this portfolio of now about 200 plus materials. We don't carry a ton of colors. We're not a, we don't have pink anything, unfortunately for me, but we don't have any of those like glitter materials or anything like that. It's all just base polymers and black, white, gray, but We've just got such a variety of materials that aren't just useful, but there's nothing on our our list that we can't print effectively and really stand behind, which is fortunate. Does the company and your group play a role in developing any of these materials? It sounds like some of the chemical companies about to come out with materials do talk with you about them. We have so many relationships with these chemical companies already. We might not have as recognizable of a name for our 3D printers, obviously, but if you do injection molding in North America, you know who M. Holland is. And we are all over the injection molding magazines and everything for 3D printing. So the chemical companies know that we're heavily involved in it. We get approached all the time to test materials or to help develop them involved in the actual complete development of certain materials and contributing to the formulations and testing. And we actually have a full-blown laboratory in Eastern Pennsylvania. And those are some of the smartest people I've ever met ever work out of that lab uh, in Easton. And if you can imagine somebody who is unbelievably excited by plastic that's every employee we've got there. They yes, love plastic. That's awesome. And so they've been uh, really lucrative for us too in developing some of our own compounds and creating some really unique materials. How does that work to bridge between all the, the various sources for materials to then be able to supply smaller allotments to some of your customers? It really does come down to that infrastructure piece because we carry billions of pounds of plastic all over North America and beyond already. When starting out, we had two materials. We had two little shelves in the warehouse that kept all of our materials. It was just two pallets. And that's what we we started with. And the materials are more expensive. That obviously compensates for the quantities of materials sold. But most companies don't want to be bothered with the effort it takes to sell a material. For us, because we already had all of these different resources in place for the other part of our business, it was really easy for us to lump that in and Mm. to really offset our costs um, to make that possible. It was as seamless as 
hey, for these materials that we brought into our warehouse, instead of shipping them on Gaylords uh, or in truckloads uh, and by the ton, we're shipping them via UPS and FedEx. And some of our customers and our resellers do buy massive quantities of materials. We've got yeah. a much larger portion of the warehouse than we, we did when I started. Um, but all in all, we still have some resellers that are, are working out of their house and selling yep. Ultimakers or whatever else. So we'll send them three whole spools. And it's as easy for us to send three spools, given our infrastructure, as it is for us to send three pallets. The shipping method is yep. just different. It also does tie into the rest of our business. We've got a lot of molders who do custom molding in smaller quantities. So their business was built on molding components that were 10,000 parts per year or less, which is, of course, the ideal quantities for additive manufacturing. I've sat down with so many different customers that have said, we're losing jobs left and right, and we're getting undercut, or people are going towards 3D printing because they're able to do these cool geometries, or they're able to produce five parts. What do we do? I'm like, well, get into 3D printing. Of course, that's your solution. <laughs> Those are jobs that they were buying the pellets for injection molding from us already. So for us too, it's how do we keep our customers engaged with M Holland and it's helping them keep those jobs and keep that business that would otherwise be going away and going to Proto Labs or a contract manufacturer that might be undercutting them on the additive side because they don't have to justify that tooling purchase. So there's a lot that goes into it, but it's also to keep these customers alive. If these companies aren't able to adapt and change a lot faster and be able to keep up with what is competing with them or the new tech in manufacturing, they're going to disappear. We yeah. are a family-owned company. M. Holland stands for Marvin Holland. And mm -hmm. his son, Ed Holland, is our CEO. Two of his, his children are in our business. I'm going to sound like I'm a commercial for M. Holland, but it is the culturally the best company I've ever worked for. Mm -hmm. They didn't furlough anybody during COVID, did everything they could to keep everybody working full capacity all the time. And they very much have a soft spot and a place in their heart for these smaller molders that have been buying from M. Holland for 60 years, even if it means that we're in the red to an extent in helping this small molder in the middle of nowhere, Kentucky adopt 3D printing. Mm. It doesn't matter. That's part of our core values and that's part of our business. We would much rather be in the red and keep that business up and running and able to compete with the times than just say, ah, it was all, we only lost 5,000 pounds of, of material, but it's not a big deal. It's, no, that's a huge deal to us because we very genuinely care about our customers that's in that way. Story. And I just keep thinking about the numbers that have been coming out that 45% of all small businesses are expected to close forever during COVID. When I drive down the street, there are blocks of buildings that are now completely empty that were full less than six months ago. It, it's terrifying. I was much younger in 2008, but I still remember driving past empty abandoned buildings and the empty houses everywhere. I don't know how directly you've ever worked with customers like that, but that is all they do. They like yeah. live and breathe their businesses yep. and they care so much about what they do. And in the same way that our employees just love plastic, they love molding and they love what they do. And to see it taken away from them through no faults of Gosh. their own is just, it's crushing. So considering your range of customers, at what stage do you feel like we are in as far as the transformation of manufacturing to include more additive solutions? 
I, I think we're, I still think we're early, but I think that COVID is as terrible as it is to say has really helped the case of additive because so many times you know, I had this, this standard education presentation that I would give to customers to try and explain yeah. to them what a target application looks like, why quantities are a certain way, all the things that, that we've been talking about. And then COVID happened and all of a sudden more 3D printing news stories were in mainstream media than at least I've ever seen in my entire life. <laughs> and from a a manufacturing perspective, because it doesn't matter as much if a consumer understands it. When it came to manufacturing, mm -hmm. they started to understand that, hey, we're not able to make this stuff fast enough. Our lead times to cut a new tool to make this N95 mask is at least eight weeks. And these people are 3D printing face shields that they designed this morning and they've already made 400. Yeah. So they started to understand what the benefits were why it was beneficial, how it fits in. Companies that hadn't otherwise been introduced to 3D printing or hadn't yet adopted it were, we had talked to companies that were trying to get into 3D printing like the next day. They were asking us, we want to buy 300 spools of PETG because we want to start printing face shields and we're going to buy our printers tonight and start printing them. It was a really great development for 3D printing to be able to step in for COVID and actually solve a lot of the supply chain and, and manufacturing problems. So let's talk a little bit about supply chain and we can bridge from this to, to there. What are some ways that you're seeing out of manufacturing transforming the supply chain? Digital manufacturing all the way. Excellent. We've seen quite a few companies, especially within our customer base who have not yet been back to the office since they were sent home in March. Like they, they literally have just mm -hmm. not been there at all. And they'll take home 3D printers and they'll send each other designs and they'll start 3D printing prototypes. And they're able to completely do their jobs from home, from an engineering perspective. Now, these are your parts that you need to be able to print today and sending each other designs and okay, I'll prototype it here and see how it looks. And being able to communicate that way has been incredibly effective and also showing companies that probably aren't going to return back to the office because there are lots of companies like that. Yeah. They may never go back, that it's totally possible to do this remotely. And that opens up more than just the supply chain from a digital manufacturing perspective. That also opens up the workforce. If everybody can work remote because of these manufacturing methods that are opening up, then we're able to open up our talent searches to cities that we had not otherwise been able to consider because we can have everybody work from home. So what is your thought about what will happen from here forward? So I think in addition to all the benefits and exposure that Additive was able to get from COVID, it also put a lot of pressure on everyone in the development space that we need these things that everyone's been screaming, we need more materials, we need less expensive materials, we need all of these different things. There are so many things that we're just on the cusp of being able to compete on with cost, but we just can't. I think that the actual cost is going to come down, it's inevitable, but also the types of materials that are available, the materials that people are starting to ask for. This is a good chance, I think, to talk again about a topic you brought up quite early in the interview about transparency. Do you think that transparency and open filament systems are really going to be um, a powerful tool in increasing adoption in this manner? I, I know that I'm biased as all hell, but I don't think that there's much of a place left for closed platform printing. I just don't. 
It's just so easy to do open platform now because that was the excuse for as long as I can remember that closed platform is just easier because you can set it up and click print. I can tell you that when I got the Ultimaker, I didn't even open the manual and I set it up and clicked print. (laughs) So it's just gotten so much easier to do it uh, on an open platform side that I have yet to think of a reason to purchase a closed platform printer in today's industry. And also to that point, that transparency is something I'm incredibly passionate about because I, I have to deal with those unrealistic expectations that these consumers have. And it puts such a bad taste in everyone's mouth when they think that it can do all these things that it definitely cannot. And they only find out after they've made an investment or after they've dug a lot deeper. And when you think about how these certification processes work for uh, certifying bodies like UL or ISO standards or whatever material certification that you have to abide by, It's not just hearsay. You don't just believe somebody when they tell you that material has X, Y, and Z property. It Mm -hmm. still has to go through testing. So when you think about how those products are developed already and their understanding of how those technologies work, you have to have all the data in the world to truly assess if something's going to work, especially if it's like a life-saving medical application. They need to know way more than they're being told now. So you talked about some of the advantages for digital manufacturing. What about distributed manufacturing? It's become a lot more popular uh, also probably because of COVID because that's such a selling point right now is how do we keep as many people out of the plants or at home as possible, only keeping super necessary personnel on site. So to be able to say, do you really need your operator to stand there and machine apart, or could they be doing something else that's a lot more vital, 3D printing that instead? And so that was a concept that they seemed to absorb to an extent before that happened. But now that everyone's focused on reducing the number of employees that they have on site, it seems to be a lot more important, and it's becoming a lot more, a lot more widely used and accepted When I did work for the machine tool company, I used to butt heads with the applications engineers on the CNC side because Mm -hmm. they'd say, how long is it going to take you to print this this jig? And I'd say, okay, it says it's going to take six hours. They say, I could cut that in an hour and a half. And I'm like, yeah, but Tim, you've got to stand at the machine for an hour and a half. I can click print and go home and do literally anything else and come back and it's done. (laughs) (laughs) So they're stuck in that whole cut to cut. We beat it. Yeah, but they're paying you a hell of a lot an hour to stand there while, while that part is cut. So it's not the same. So they seem a lot more receptive to that concept than they have been in, uh, in the past. Like they, they start to see the value of that more and it means more to them now that they're thinking about those elements. I think with that, we'll, uh, we'll wrap up. I just want to say thank you very much for joining today for Talking Additive. Uh, it's really important to have your voice in here. And thank you for sharing about M. Holland, your background and the work that you do. Yeah, thank you again. This was really fun to be able to be a part of. And I'm, I'm looking forward to hearing it when it comes out. Thanks again to Haley Ann Friedman from M. Holland Company. We hope that you have enjoyed our 12th episode for the Talking Additive podcast, featuring M. Holland, one of the industry's leading resins distributors. To learn more, visit them online at mholland.com. If you have questions about any topics covered during this episode of Talking Additive, we invite you to post on Twitter or LinkedIn to hashtag 
Talking Additive, all one word. In two weeks, we will return with Lucky Episode 13, featuring Jop van de Sande from Eriks. Eriks has played a key role in the industry by providing technical components and optimizing parts production for top brands, catering to needs across the many stages of a product's lifetime. Subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and join the conversation by signing up for news and announcements at talkingadditive.com. Thanks again to Haley Ann Friedman and the M. Holland 3D team for joining us for this episode. Our series producer is Hannah Takini, studio manager David Roberson, executive producer Nuno Campos, music and episode sound mix by Brian Scary and Giulio Carmasi of Hummingbird's Custom Music and Sound. I am host and producer Matt Griffin, and thank you for listening. On Talking Additive, we hold conversations with colleagues and customers about 3D printing's impact on business.